Welcome to the Red Life Podcast, a podcast about living as a socialist in this world. I'm your host, Kieran Fatima, here with my co-host, Moxie. If you like what you hear and want some bonus content, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash redlifepodcast. You're listening to episode two of Red Life Podcast. In this episode, we discuss our origin stories, where we are from, and how we came to be who we are. In the next episode, we're going to discuss the COVID-19 pandemic and the difference between how socialist countries have handled the crisis versus how the U.S. and Canada have handled it. If you would like show notes and would like to connect with us, you can join us at patreon.com slash redlifepodcast. We would appreciate your support. Enjoy the show. Say hello to my co-host, Moxie. Hi, everybody. Thanks for joining us. I'm Kieran, and we are so glad that you're listening to us. We started this podcast because we wanted to show a platform where we could talk about being socialist in this world, in this capitalist, imperialist world. How do we practice our values? How do we do what we believe in? How do we live up to the ideals and to the vision that we have for a better world? Right, Moxie? Exactly. Yeah. And keeping it conversational, keeping it very practical. You know, of course, we'll, you know, might throw in some theoretical quotes here and there and a little bit bit of theory, but overall, we want it to feel really accessible for folks and really um, relatable. So we're, we are hoping that you will listen, regardless of whether you consider yourself a socialist or not, or a Marxist or communist, and that you will get something out of it. So I thought this episode, we should do an origin story type thing for the two of us. Maybe mm-hmm. people are curious about who we are. And, you know, just give people some idea of who we are as people before mm-hmm. we continue to talk about some things that sometimes can get abstract, you know, so I think it's a good idea to ground our listener, right? So exactly. tell, tell me something about yourself and how you became, you know, a communist or a Marxist or socialist. And how do you identify? Um, actually, that's a good question, Kieran. How do I identify? Um, I definitely identify as a communist now, a Marxist-Leninist communist. And that's been for the last two years now. So I think it was 2018, where I like officially said, that's it. This resonates for me. And how I decided that was actually following you, Kieran, on Twitter. (laughs) 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 When you had like thousands of followers and um, you just always really had amazing information that you put out there, free reading sources, because you don't always know what to read, right? As you're sort of coming to your political awareness or political maturity, whatever you want to call it. You don't always know what reading sources to get. You don't always know how to view or what perspective or lens to have when you're reading these things. And you would often um, put out a lot of stuff that really helped me find my path to identifying as a Marxist-Leninist. Mm. Um, thank you for that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> but yeah, so I... I I'm a, a, a Communist Party member, of course, and I. the reason why I became a party member is because I like organizational structure to my activism, if you want to call it that, because my activism really is a lifestyle. It's not just something I do for, you know, social capital or status. It's something that is really important to me. It has been my whole life, and the party for me just felt like a, a good home 
to be able to do that, mm-hmm. right? And and utilize all of the the tools at your disposal when you're in an organized party. Mm-hmm. Prior to that, Kieran, I mean, part of why when I started following you on Twitter back in 2017, <laughs> it was really I found you through like some of my my Bernie Sanders activism, and you oh, always yeah. had you always had some critique about him. Of course, like you know, he, he was a pretty big deal at the time, just given yeah. the politics at the time there with Trump and Bernie and, you know, and some how he sort of talked about sort of socialist type, or at least socialist demo- democratics. It was a pretty big deal at the time. And, you yeah. know, I definitely think that he did open up the space for a discussion of socialism in a way in the sort of very mainstream yeah. American media that just wasn't there for a long time. And, exactly. and for a whole new generation of people. So I think there's value in that. Mm-hmm. And that's the other thing is like, I often followed like electoral politics. And, and I was always really interested in how elections worked, particularly in, in North America, the United States. And to me, it always felt like such bullshit. I was, mm, yeah. <laughs> you know, every election, it's like, supposedly these leftist politicians or party people would never get any media attention. They would never get, or at least, the same kind of attention that was given to, you know, more liberal or even right-wing politicians. And it just used to frustrate the heck out of me Mm -hmm. because I was so invested in elections being part of the way for change. Right, right. And and I was really stuck on that at the time, right? Because that's that's the climate I grew up in. And that's you know, kind of what's funneled down and fed to us. Like, this is important. One vote per person. And, uh, you know, it's your democratic right. And, you know, all this, this bullshit, essentially. And then just never seeing anything change from it. Right. Mm-hmm. So after the Bernie Sanders stuff, I was like, Oh, this is another example of like, here's a politician who's like quite left for the United States, frankly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yes, still very mainstream, but for, for the United States, pretty left. And then shortly after that, there was the NDP stuff for new leadership in in Canada, the New Democratic Party in Canada. And I was quite involved in that because I wanted to see who I had thought at the time, a really lefty person, take the leadership. And I saw how the NDP just shut her right out. Mm -hmm. And they really propped up the person who was going to be more liberal, you know, and, and sort of feed into these kind of tokenism identity politics stuff that was really starting to piss me off with the NDP because they just, it was so disingenuine, you know, it wasn't like there was no intersectionality around it. So yeah. So that's kind of where I just decided that's it. I'm done with these, these sort of bourgeois uh, capitalist democracy parties. I'm, I'm done, but I still wanted a political organization. Yeah. So that's a little bit there. How did you become, like, how do you identify, Kieran? Like, what's... Well, I identify as a communist, Marxist-Leninist as well. And of course, I'm also in the party with you. Of course, this podcast is not a party podcast, so I just want to put that out there. Uh, this is just the two no, it's of a, us. No, it's, it's a, a Kieran and Moxie podcast. Yes, yes, very much so. <laughs> So that, that gives us the, you know, we can goof off and not worry that we're, we're not representing the party in our podcast. So anyway, but yes, I do identify as a communist and Marxist Leninist, but I didn't always. And yeah, there's, there's a whole story there too. So basically I joined the party in 2017 and the journey that took me there was quite a long journey. I came to socialism and communism pretty late in life, I feel, in my late 30s. And 
you know, a lot of people my age don't go that way, I guess. Some people do. Obviously, yourself is being one of them. Mm -hmm. But uh, I feel like a lot of people our age just don't explore (laughs) these things much. Mm -hmm. I was born in Pakistan, and I was born in a poor family where my parents were living was a slum. And my father was one of these entrepreneurial types, very petty bouge, always trying to come up with the next, you know, side hustle to like make money. But like sometimes he would make money, sometimes he wouldn't, he, you know, sometimes he had a job, sometimes he just kind of did his own thing. Mm-hmm. So we never had like a steady thing. We were always getting evicted. We were homeless for a little while. We lived with some f- family members who did us basically a favor by letting us live with them for a couple of months. So that was happening. And that's how I grew up. But I still wasn't very political. And then eventually, I, we came to the US, right? From Pakistan, we moved to the USA. And I was around 12 years old at that time. And there was a lot of racism and xenophobia that I faced in the US from people, you know, of all different class and race and strata and of society It was quite overwhelming. Yeah. Uh, this was during the first Gulf War when George H.W. Bush was bombing Iraq for the first, well, mm-hmm. for one of the many times. I was uh, bullied there in school and, you know, faced a lot of harassment, both from teachers, from guidance counselors, as well as students. But I still was very apolitical because I think I was just trying to survive. And when you're trying to survive, you don't always think about the politics behind what's shaping you and how things are happening because you're just trying to survive in that environment, right? So I still didn't feel like I was very political. I always felt I was sort of progressive, definitely leftist, but not any particular type of politics. And also as an immigrant, you feel like you don't really have the right to be involved in politics sometimes. There's that mm. feeling. I was actually going to ask I was going to ask you about that. Like when you when you came to the states, of course there's like this whole transition, pretty brutal process of immigration at least in Canada, and I would imagine in the States as well, where you're not even allowed to be included in the elections, right? So their form of democracy, you're not even allowed to be included in for quite a long time, right? Like how how did that work for you? Yeah, so we were not citizens. We never became citizens in the US. And we were excluded from voting and anything, you know, remotely related to being part of the political structure yeah. there or, or being or participating in any way. Yeah, so we couldn't vote. You know, there were lots of restrictions on immigrants who were not citizens, who were not naturalized, and some restrictions even on citizens who are naturalized. Mm. And then, so yeah, that was def- definitely part of, I think, why I never got involved because I never, I never felt it was my place to get involved. But then slowly I started to, as I got older in my teens and early 20s, I became aware of the huge discrepancies all around me, the inequalities, including my own family's poverty, but also the even worse situations of many other people all around me. So from homeless people to, especially in the US, there's a lot of undiagnosed and untreated medic medical health issues right a lot of so there's a lot yeah. of that and i'm sure yeah. there is in canada too but there's a lot of that in the u.s especially if you're like in new york city or parts of new jersey where i grew up so you know you see these kinds of discrepancies and you know you see in northern new jersey where i grew up where we were the poorest family in the in the town again everybody else was pretty well off and then you would go down to newark which is like a, a city in the middle of New Jersey. And, you know, there's dire poverty, homeless people, all kinds of, mm-hmm. you can see the, you can see the symptoms of poverty. And, you know, it's in the same mm-hmm. state, just a 
half an hour drive away. So I just remember thinking like that this is just normal. I remember thinking that somehow this is just the way things are and that yeah. I never even questioned it, even including my own family's poverty. Yeah. Like, why are we poor? What the hell did we do to deserve all this? Mm-hmm. Like, I just kind of internalized the messaging around me that somehow those other people were doing better, were better at something than me. And I just had to get better at something and then I could get there too. You know, there was that whole American dream. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, for me, like that, it's it's quite similar. I grew up in uh, relative poverty for in Canada, um, small, small military town um, was where I spent most of my, I guess, youth, <laughs> um, born in, in the capital of Canada. And then uh, my parents and I and my brother and sister moved to, um, yeah, the military town because it was um, th- my my mom and dad had some family there still because they were both what they would call army brats. So they both had parents that joined the military in order to look after their family, dental care, housing, that kind of thing. Because there's quite a bit of intergenerational poverty in my in my family, and the military loves to prey on <laughs> poorer communities. And recruit from poor communities. That's their MO in a lot Mm -hmm. of ways, still is. Thankfully, uh, neither one of my parents got caught up in that military trap. Uh, My mom worked in a factory and my dad was an odd jobber, seasonal laborer. We were able to move to to the country because we found uh, a place where these two older land, two older farmers had a farm and they became our landlords. So they were like, Oh, you're a young family and you could work the farm for us so we can keep it and get cheap rent. So my dad was excited about that because he wanted to make sure that we were as self sustainable as, as possible. And he was pretty big on that um, because he also grew up homeless and on the streets and came from a very abusive background, lots of intergenerational trauma there. My my father's mother was um, part Mohawk from St. Regis and uh, lots of disconnection from cultural stuff for him. Yeah, so my dad had um, definitely some identity stuff, but also just, you know, a really hard life. And so did my mom. My mom came from you know, a family of 10 kids. So there was never any money, even though they had their housing looked after because her father was military and they had their dental looked after. So I think for me, my dad always used to say, you know, you're you're poor and you're always going to be poor. You never get out of poverty. Mm. So you just have to learn how to work hard and you better work hard because people are going to judge you. And because we're poor, you're going to be the first one who's looked at if something goes missing in somebody else's house who isn't that poor. Mm. And it was like, you always better be on damn good behavior. You got to make sure that you are are polite and like all of this. So in some ways, my dad was this oddly really aware that it was a lie. Like, we're never going to be rich, you know, like, you know, so this idea right. of like joining the middle class so you can eventually become rich. Like, he, he oddly knew that that was never going to freaking happen. <laughs> so, so I just kind of always knew that too. It's like, oh. You know, I'm never really gonna. <laughs> I'm gonna, never really gonna accomplish that, right? Right. And um, yeah, I mean, and my mom, my mom worked worked the union. She was always a good union steward. My parents, like as far as elections and and politics goes, they were hardcore New Democratic Party because there was this myth that that they had grown up with that that was the party of the working people. Mm. 
and both of them were always getting disillusioned by them as well. But uh, yeah, they were always kind of like union people, working class, without without any kind of theoretical analysis because they both were not educated. My mom was able to, uh, after a bout of homelessness from leaving, our family got broken up and we went into child protection services and all kinds of stuff. Like there was quite a bit of stuff going on, but uh, my mom became a single mother. We, we lived in um, Ontario housing and um, because she was on low income and a single mom and poor, uh, she was able at the time to get the, the, this was back in like, Oh God, when was this? I think it was like the late eighties, early nineties. And she became a nurse. So she was able to go to, Right. nursing school. Okay. So she was quite happy with that. But then she, you know, then she, of course, worked part time her right. whole nursing career. <laughs> what was it like growing up in that kind of environment? You mean in just like being poor, like yeah. poverty wise? It was a struggle. It was hard. It was mm-hmm. really stressful, very stressful. Um, not knowing um, how much money we're going to have, if the winter was going to get really cold, we had to make sure that we had enough wood cut because gas was really expensive. So was oil. It's a lot of hard work too. Right. Just a lot of hard work. It's not just hustling to find work. You're working hard. You're you're trying to grow your own food, like for us anyways. And, you know, in some ways I consider myself lucky because we were able to live in this huge house in the countryside where we were able to pretty much, you know, grow our own food and, and have a wood stove and all of those things. Right. So right. we were able to penny pinch a little bit better on, on mm-hmm. sort of the basic needs like housing, heat and food. <laughs> yeah. In my case, my family was just going through these sort of zigzag phases, like waves of, you know, poverty, and then slightly less poverty, and then poverty again, in terms of like, we could live in a slightly better apartment. But then again, we were back to not being able to pay rent very often. And uh, so this was in the States now. And uh, we moved around a lot. I was very depressed about losing the few friends that I had made. And then mm-hmm. after that last, that went on for about 10 years. I got a scholarship to go to university, so I went to university for one year, but then that year, our immigration status was denied, right, in the U.S., so I lost my scholarship, and I couldn't continue with the university because we couldn't pay the actual fees or anything, so... Once they denied our case, my mother, whose case, because my me and my brother were under her case, she appealed the decision. And then that, again, put us in this limbo state, right? So we weren't mm-hmm. quite, we weren't really work, we're like permanent residents, but we were also not undocumented yet. We were in limbo. So I wasn't really sure what my status was for a long time in the States. And... Mm-hmm. um Anyway, so eventually... That's a hard way to live too, right? It's like, yeah. y- y- that's your sense of, of security and safety, right? Just right. not knowing there was where no the such you're going to be. Yeah, there yeah. was no such thing. And we didn't know if they were going to just pick pluck us out and send us back or whatever at any point. And then in uh, 10 years after we had moved to the US, so I had now gone from 12 to 22, so I had lived 10 years in the States. And my family, my brothers had, one of my brothers was born in the States and all this stuff had happened and the U.S. government deported my family, right? Oh, God. So they deported my mother and my brothers. Uh, Well, the one brother who was born in the U.S., he just, my mother took him because he was a baby. So they deported them and, um, and also me. 
And by then I was like, no, I'm not going back. I'm not going back to Pakistan because I mm. was at this point just like starting to come out as a queer woman. So I was like, mm -hmm. I'm not sure how I, I just didn't know how I could live as that in Pakistan at the time. <clears throat> so I defied the deportation order and I became an undocumented uh, person in the US. And this was about a year before 9-11 happened. Mm -hmm. So right after the deportation, just within a year of that, there was this huge upsurge in anti-Muslim bigotry and hatred and racism, xenophobia and all this stuff was just like quadrupled after that. And so even though I had lived for 10 years in this country that I thought was my home, there was just really signs all around that it was not my home and I was not welcome there. Mm -hmm. And I was undocumented. I was an illegal alien, as they call yeah. it. Yeah. So it was very difficult. And somehow I managed to survive, which is like, uh, yeah, another story. But eventually I left and came to Canada and I was able to get uh, refugee status in Canada as, mm -hmm. um, as a convention refugee. I was very thankful and on some part I still am on some level because the sort of life of limbo and being illegal and all these things were really, I, I lived with that for like 21 years before I actually became oh a citizen of Canada. So for like yeah. 21 years, I had no citizenship and I wasn't like, I didn't have a home and I didn't know where I was mm -hmm. going to be in a month or a year. So mm -hmm. anyway, so even despite all that, I didn't get involved in politics. But again, I didn't think it was my place, right? Even though I grew up poor, working class in this horrible situation with abuse and racism and all these things that I'm facing, I still didn't, I was an activist in some way. I, d I was an activist in college. For example, I joined the LGBT groups there. Mm -hmm. And I was uh, part of one of the first pride parades in Orlando, Florida. <laughs> and, um, it was fun. There was no material support that those groups provided, right? Because they were there as a sort of support for your identity, right? Again, like yourself, where you came across where you saw how identity is used by as sort of it gets co-opted by capital. And yes. so I saw yeah. that, but I mean, I can say that now, but at the time I just saw, I just was disappointed in all these groups that I kept finding and then that kept being sort of not able to provide any kind of material support, not just to me, but to anyone. Mm -hmm. Anyway, but um, yeah, eventually I, when I came to Canada, I had to, when I became a citizen of Canada, I had to take a, an oath to the Queen of England. <laughs> oh God. So, oh, yeah. so I, I came from an, a, a former British colony in South Asia, and I ended up going to a country where I had to take an oath to the same British uh, empire. Mm. And it was just really, really discombobulating at the time. <laughs> so yeah. What the hell? But on, I, this, I, on this colonized land, you know, on taking, this land. Yeah. yeah. It's like, you know, like, yeah. I didn't have to ask permission by the Haudenosaunee or anything. You know, yeah. I had to get, I had to like, yeah, I had to pledge allegiance to the Queen of England. See, and that um, would be decolonization, right? If you know how right. they, how how Trudeau's always, you know, now giving this lip service, Trudeau, the Prime Minister of Canada, giving this lip service that he's, you know, you know, if it's if he's not sort of doing a photo op, holding a Black Lives Matter sign or, uh, sign or taking a knee, then he's kind of talking about truth and reconciliation and the idea of decolonization. It's like, oh my God, are you serious? So let's let's start there. Then let's start making sure that people don't have to take an oath to the Queen of England when they right. get their citizenship and that there's an acknowledgement that this land is stolen. That'll it's be like, the day. Yeah, there's been right. some change. There's been some modification in the oath, but I've 
I'd have to look it up exactly what, but they still, the Queen of England is still part of it. But I think they might have changed something about also like including Canadian state or Canadian sovereignty or something on okay. top of that. But it's still, it's not actually acknowledging the indigenous people yeah. or the genocide of the indigenous people. Of course not. But anyway, so I think that now I look back at that moment as definitely one moment, one of the moments that made me who I am, you know, when I was sort of, because even though it's just words, right, but an oath is still important to me. Like, mm-hmm. uh, if I don't, like, if I make a promise, it's important that I mean what I say. Mm-hmm. And I think at that moment, something broke, you know, that had been building up for a long time where I thought, what is the point of all this? You know, I went through so much shit for 21 years. I went through all this shit, lost my family, you know, lost so much money and in terms of like trying to get from one place to another. It's a very expensive process, immigration, even being a refugee. Mm-hmm. You have to pay application fees and all kinds of shit. Uh, you have to show up. And then to, if you get if you get denied, you got to then pay for a lawyer, which yeah. is like, who the hell can afford that? We had right? to pay just to find out what was going on with my case in the US. I had to pay like $700 to a lawyer, right? Oh my God. It's an expensive process. And it took me like four months or something to save the money to be able to pay that lawyer. So it's a huge, stressful fucking thing. And I went through it for like 22 years mm-hmm. or 21 years, something like that. So it's it was just really like, why did all of this happen? Why did this happen? And I would always look at other people and I would be like, you didn't go through this. You didn't have to, you know, leave your family and have be separated from your family for years. We all grew up separately because of this problem. We all grew up separately, me and my siblings. And mm-hmm. we're separated even today. And uh, there's all kinds of mental health problems that we have developed because of all of this stress that we went through. Yeah. For what, you know? Like, obviously for the privilege of living inside the imperial core, but uh, what does that mean? I started mm-hmm. to really question what that means, I think, somewhere around when I got the citizenship. Mm-hmm. Because also, I had now the material basis, the so- so-called legal right to be part of the politics. You know what I mean? For the first time right. ever in my life. Yes. Because when I was in Pakistan, I was a child, so I still wasn't really <laughs> supposed to be in anything. Oh, and I'm, sh- and I'm sure the Canadian state would be, would be quite upset that they have you as a <laughs> communist now. <laughs> I'm sure they're not happy. Hi, officer, who is assigned to us. Thank you for listening. Um, um, So anyway, so it was, yeah. But that's the thing. Like, I think, too, like, listening to your story, because your life, like, there, there was a lot of struggle there, like a ton of struggle, right? And I think that's the key about sort of leading to consciousness and having, um, whether you're joining a political party or not, right? Like it's totally, you know, it's completely up to you, right? Or getting involved in, you know, bourgeois democracy and elect- elections and that kind of stuff. That's, you know, which I do still get involved in, by the way, but because I do think it's important, but for very different reasons. But yeah, I think the the idea of the struggle, right? And, and looking at and reflecting back on why that struggle is even there, questioning things like that, like questioning... Yeah, the fact that you had to pledge allegiance to the queen or, you know, coming from a a colonized country yourself, right? And racism and not feeling like you're even safe or secure, like all of those things, right? And, and I think when you grow up poor, there's that relationship to a sense of security that you're just not allowed to have. 
You're worried about homelessness. You're worried about uh, where your next meal is going to come from. And then you factor in racism on top of that or homophobia on top of that. Displacement, right? Needing to move countries in order to or, or your homelands in order to to find work or to have some sense of security because really I think at the end of the day we're all chasing a security right and stability because that is like a very essential need as as human beings like we need to feel like we can have a roof over our freaking head when it's minus 40 outside you know at the very fundamental raw right. core of it all right yeah definitely and yeah you know I don't believe in like comparing oppressions or anything, but there's definitely the additional racism and xenophobia and immigration itself adds yep. an immense, each of those things adds immense amounts of stress. And, you know, I'm still recovering from what I experienced for the first 34 years of my life. Like, <laughs> of course. And the fact that you didn't even get to go to school on your, on uh, like a, a scholarship. Because of your, uh, you know, the racist immigration systems, right? Right. And on stolen land, to add that to, to the whole like, thing. Like, even though um, I had the meritocratic right, which according to them is everything, right? Like, you have to be, it's all about a meritocracy, supposedly, yeah. in the U.S. And I had achieved that, and I got a scholarship, <laughs> and it still wasn't good enough, and I was still fucked over by the system. Mm -hmm. And anyway, so I think once once I actually became a citizen in Canada... I tell my partner that it feels, it felt like everything finally stopped for a minute, like in terms of the struggle and like, not that it stopped, but I was able to catch my breath. And then w yeah. that's when I started to think about these things. Like, why, why did this happen? How can I, how can I make sure it doesn't happen again or to, it doesn't happen to somebody else? Yes, totally. That's that, like, how can I make sure it doesn't happen again or to somebody else? That's exactly what was sort of my consciousness sort of birthing happened <laughs> for lack of a better word right. like it's it's going wow i'm looking at you know my brother has a disability he's living in in a shithole and can't find anything that's half decent and my my father as well and all of his family and a lot on my mother's side as well and and even me moving to toronto as well like i i, I moved to a big city because <laughs> I was 20 and I thought I'd make it um, big as a singer singing karaoke, but I learned really quickly that's never going to happen. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh, I'm going to get discovered like on the TV. <laughs> it's like such a small town girl thing. <laughs> um, but I mean, I did do a lot of music and I always worked like two, three jobs. I always at least had two jobs when I moved to the city. And and I was always, you know, the one renting the smallest room in, in, in the shared apartment because, you know, I got to pay a little bit less rent. And um, and then coming out as, as a queer woman myself, it actually was very liberating for me. And I know that can kind of sound cliche, but I started to find these like dyke punks, you know, all of these like lezzy dyke punks. And some of them were a bit anarchist and they're, you know, really challenged the system in ways that I had only ever thought about, but never quite knew how to articulate how to do that, whether it's through actions or, or what you say or read or whatever. So they really taught me a lot, like my little queer circle, you know, right. and getting involved in activism with them. Where did you so work I, while you were there? Well, you mean when I was first in Toronto? Yeah. Or, oh gosh, I worked at a um, a clothing store called Pennington's. It's a plus size clothing store. Oh, so just and like retail jobs and stuff. Retail and and of course I would I'd be the one to save all of the the liquor and and 
liquor cans and bottles and stuff from uh, my roommate's party. So I, I would take them in. And that was always an embarrassing factor too, is I always ended up kind of living with these people that, you know, I, I wasn't able to go to school. I knew that I would never be able to go to college, even though I, I wanted to at one point, because I knew I had to work. I knew I was going to have to work. And it's like, how can I work and go to school when I'm like, I already struggle with school as it was, right? Like I, I was a very practical um, student, like I needed to do things in order for it to kind of sink in. Yeah. So that's where I got my big dream about being a singer. Oh, I'll just be right. a singer. <laughs> <laughs> Ignoring the words of my father that I'm never going to be rich coming out of poverty. <laughs> not, in, <laughs> not in a country like this. <laughs> Well, I worked for some pretty big corporations. Uh, I worked for Disney, Starbucks, and a major bank. And yeah, and I also have done a lot of retail work, waitressing, all kinds of stuff. I mean, there were times when I had three jobs talking about studying. I was working in Starbucks and Disney, and I was taking a Microsoft certification course that I, it took me a year to do. It's a full-time course. Mm -hmm. And I was basically seven days a week, I was doing something. I was working in, from five to two. And then, wow. oh, yeah, I would work from five to two, take a class in the evening. And then on the weekend, I would uh, work in the other job. So it was oh like God. full time, yeah. like crazy ass. But I was 22. So I was like, whatever, you can do a lot when I know. you're 22. <laughs> yeah, you still got the stamina and the energy, you know, three hours <laughs> sleep and you're working like triple shifts. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I did waitressing too for a very long time because I also wanted to be in bands too, right? So that was kind of my third job was was doing music um, and singing. Mm -hmm. But um, yeah, and it wasn't, and it was through actually a lot of my activism and stuff that I ended up getting into getting my foot in the door, even without, you know, sort of a full on college education, because I was able to take sort of certificates here and there and that kind of thing um, to help with my educational component, like, mm -hmm. you know, along with my practicum. But I really got into to social work from doing activism more than anything. And just my my own kind of personal experience with poverty and living right. in a shelter and right. that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And then you said that you got involved with the Bernie campaign or you were following the Bernie campaign and and that's how you kind of became yeah. more. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I've always been involved in, in like I was doing union work for a time. I organized a union at my workplace, I uh, which was like, whoa, it was awesome. We, we But again, it's like it's a lot of work, right? Like anything that you want to do to make any kind of change, whether it's for yourself in your own life or for somebody else in in it's it's going to be a, a serious job right right it's going to be a lot of work but yeah i think i um yeah so eventually it's sort of like my it was my union work that actually sort of led me into getting more involved in campaign stuff during elections right mm. so i did a little bit of work with the ndp like canvassing and that sort of thing for different elections i was totally ndp -er. i was a big time were you yeah, yeah. For, for a number of years when we first came to Canada and um, all the way, I would say, until about 2012. So when Mulcair was elect, was uh, yeah. after Jack Layton died, I was at yeah. the big funeral for Jack Layton in downtown Toronto, right? I went to that thing. My mom was so sad when he died. My mom, yeah, uh, yeah she was so sad. But I mean, there, um, are things, there are things that I've since learned about oh, yeah. the NDP and him that I can't say I'm, I'm any, <laughs> of course, I'm no longer a fan of yeah. that party. But um, 
That was Me a too. long time. Just, yeah. just for the record, I'm not either. Not to say though, Kieran, that there isn't some, you know, decent, like I'm, not, I don't want to like completely ixnay some, some people's intentions in that party, but those people will never get into any, any. Well, the rank of- and file of the NDP are great people. There are great people among yeah. them. There are working people among them. So yeah, let me just clarify that that's not who I'm talking about. I'm talking about the leadership of the party. Exactly. Yeah. 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 They're the rank and file and the more leftist members, you know, are, bless their hearts because they're trying you know they're really trying just like we did (laughs) yeah just like we did yeah and i don't i don't blame them or anything i don't even blame them for believing that they can change that Mm -hmm. from the inside you know because hopefully they'll learn like we learned yeah yeah after jack layton died i realized that the party was moving to the right Mm -hmm. and that was just not okay so i was pretty much partyless for a long time and then in 2014 i realized 2014, and it's definitely got very clear in my mind in 2015, that fascism was on the rise Mm -hmm. again. Not that it ever really went away, but it was coming out in a way that I hadn't personally seen it so blatant and, you know, proudly declare itself for what it is. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I had faced all this racism and xenophobia and Islamophobia for most of my life, but it was more of a personal way that I was treated by individuals, but now it was coming out in a way that was much larger and it was supposed to, it was just more threatening. Mm-hmm. And of course, that was the time when Trump was becoming more and more popular, right? So he was mm-hmm. he was going around doing his rallies and stuff. And then in 2015, I remember the exact date actually, where I realized that that I cannot continue the way that I have, which is that I cannot stay quiet about these things, you know, and I think that's when I might have set up my Twitter account, which eventually you found and started mm-hmm. to. And then I, yeah, I think I slowly, I was uh, not involved because obviously I'm Canadian, but I was very actively supportive of the Bernie Sanders campaign in mm-hmm. 2016. Yeah. And I'm not ashamed of it. I'm no longer in supporting Bernie, but I did. And I'm not ashamed of it. And mm-hmm. uh, it was part of my evolution. And it was a step totally. that I that was necessary at the time. Totally. So. Like, that's the thing with politics, right? We were constantly evolving. And just because, you know, for me, just because I've, you know, sort of feel liberated that I've now found my home within a party and, and being a communist, it doesn't mean that I'm not still learning constantly. There's still so much I don't know and that I want to know. Um, and I'm also just, you know, I, I've had a different experience, a nuanced life experience, right? Like, I didn't grow up with racism. You did. I have, um, but we have like these, these aligning things that happen with people, um, and the working class, which is like the struggle, right? The struggle, the economic struggle and, and the struggle. Like there's, there's those connecting factors. And that for me is the thing that I, you know, of course there's the intersectionality and that always, always will play a role, but we have that those connections as well. And that makes us really freaking powerful. And for me, that's the thing that I've started to evolve to is like really understanding the true nature of the, you know, the power of, of connection and, and as a, a whole unit of working class, just how truly powerful we are. Like it's incredible. And, you know, as I've become more educated in Marxist thought, I also understand that all of those things that I experienced from racism to xenophobia mm-hmm. to sexism and homophobia, 
are all manifestations of capitalism trying to play the working class against each other. Totally. And, you know, that's something that I didn't recognize at the time. And the reason I became a Marxist, even though I went through all of the identity markers and all the identity activism as well, so I'm not going to deny that identity has a place. Mm -hmm. And I think we're going to do an episode specifically on identity yes, politics. Yes, for sure, we should, yeah. But what I'm saying is that we, I, I realize that class or finance, financial status or how much money what you could earn was the sort of, was the factor that affected everything else. Mm -hmm. And if I was, you know, there were times in my life when I had a good job and I was treated differently by people, you know, mm -hmm. and there were times the same people would treat me differently. I remember treating them treating me differently when I was poor back in Pakistan. Mm -hmm. So there was like a difference in I mean, it was very early crude understanding of class. Of course, with private property, you know, that's a whole other thing. We were never property owners in terms of landlords and things yeah. like that. But um, I knew people who were, and I also heard them talking, and I would see how there, well, there was so much discrepancy between what they were saying and what how we were living as tenants, you know. Yeah. So because a lot of it, I was always aware of the class differences because my family, my father being very petty bouge, would hang out with people who are always wealthier than us and as much as possible try to, you know, expose us to that kind of lifestyle. So there was always this discrepancy between how I was living and how I was watching other people live. Mm -hmm. So basically, yeah, I mean, I think that what we have in common is that class struggle as well as just the struggle of being human, being women, being mm -hmm. queer, you know, which there are definitely in points where there will be overlap. But of course there's the beauty of it is that I don't really know what it's like to grow up in Canada, mm -hmm. but you know, you don't know what it's like to grow up in all these different places where I've lived. But you know what, Kieran, I think we both know that generationally as well, we know the effects of colonization and imperialism and how that can also generationally affect our economic status and racism and, you know, misogyny, all of those things, right? We, we, I, we've seen enough of our family and ourselves go through that, that that's also a connecting factor too in, in our stories, I think, where they intersect. Yeah, yeah definitely. And then basically, in 2016, I became pretty much a socialist by that, you know, the Bernie Sanders type of, quote, democratic socialist. But by the end of that mm. year, I realized that Bernie had sold out, you know, by the time that the the Democratic National Convention came around and he supported Hillary, mm -hmm. you know, who I also supported. I supported Hillary in 2015 because and I supported her just because she was a woman, just like all of those identity politics people. Yeah, I was like, she's getting I, I was like, she's getting more hate because she's a woman. And she probably was on some level. I'm not even denying that. Oh, for sure. She was. But the, 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 she's such a war hawk. You know, yeah, like, but that doesn't like... justify anything that she has done herself. Mm -hmm. So both things can be true that she faces sexism as well as she's a bad person. Mm -hmm. That <laughs> being an adult is about understanding nuances in the world. Right. Mm -hmm. So in 2016, I became more and more jaded against electoral politics. And then I didn't have a home in Canada in terms of politics. This is all American politics, right? So at the end of the day, you turn around and you look at what's going on in the, in Canada and it's like, okay, we have liberals and NDP and NDP. I already, tr you know, tried and realized that it wasn't going anywhere. It was just going to the right. Mm -hmm. After Trump was elected, I actually right around that time, I went to this event that was around the time that Fidel Castro had died also. Mm -hmm. And I went to this event. And I saw this uh, presentation that was done by the 
the Committee of Progressive Pakistani Canadians, which I'm a member of now. And the event was basically they did a presentation on, on Cuba and Castro. And these are names that I hadn't heard, but I had never really studied or looked up like the truth about what was happening there. I realized that the, the presentation they did on Cuba was about how Cuba had really helped Pakistan during some natural disasters, right? So mm-hmm. there was this earthquake and, and they had sent, as they always do, doctors, teams of doctors, equipment to help people who were stuck in this mm-hmm. earthquake. They were actually the largest, the largest amount of aid that had come to Pakistan. And there was all these other things that I learned about uh, revolutionaries in Pakistan that I had never heard of before, uh, because of course all this information is suppressed, right? So yeah. After all of that, I became convinced that I should visit Cuba because I knew as a Canadian that I could. I mean, if I had become an American, I could not have done it. But I was like, well, I'm Canadian. I should use my Canadian privilege and go to Cuba. <laughs> yes. So I did. In 2017, I went by myself to Cuba. And oh, it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. Yeah, it was it's- absolutely mind-blowing. You've been there. Yes. The first time was actually just, just before COVID broke out. <laughs> oh, right. <laughs> and um, I mean, I didn't get to travel too much. Uh, it was just a week that I had, but I did go to Havana for three days and the Veradero Beach, which was, oh my God, <laughs> breathtaking. Right. And I went on my own, which I really wanted to do. And I kind of needed to sort of have that alone time. But yeah, Havana just blew my mind. I saw all kinds of my queer sisters. <laughs> and um, mm-hmm. yeah, I was, I was actually really impressed with how, how out and queer uh, the folks that I saw were. And I was like, yeah, right on. Because <laughs> you hear such trash right. about Cuba, right? And then you go there and you're like, oh my God, this is, wow, this is a pretty incredible place. Yeah. My first Casa Particular or Airbnb type place mm-hmm. that I was staying at was right next to a gay bar or a gay uh, disco club. Oh, club. awesome. That was better than my state. So there would be like, there were like rainbow pride flags on all the restaurants around the area and stuff like that. So it was pretty cool. Yeah, for sure. But also, I just loved the way that Cuban people have this warmth about them. Oh, there's this yes. relaxed, there's, there's just a, a certain kind of calmness. And yeah, so that really just, changed my whole attitude towards communism, you know, because until then I was afraid to call myself communist. I think I was like, well, I'm a socialist, you know, one of those things where it's like, Mm -hmm. I hadn't really done a lot of reading by then, until then. And so once uh, I started to do the reading, Marx, Lenin, um, Engels, and eventually the others, I became more and more aware of what the transition of, you know, socialism and socialism sort of being the path to building communism, you know, mm-hmm. those things became more clear to me. And they still are. I'm still learning, right? There's a lot to learn. But when I came back from Cuba, I was just like, wow, I want that feeling somewhere. It was like really missing in Canada. And I realized the only place I felt that was like when I was at party events, because I was invited to a couple of party events. And I was like, wow, I think I should join. And so I did. So that's where, that's my journey there. Yeah. So what do you think, what do you, what is something that you've learned that if you could go back like to 20 years ago, you would tell yourself? Mm, oh boy. Well, I, well, something about politics, let's say. Yeah. Well, I think, I think I would have joined the, I think I would have joined the party sooner. I, that, I, I always say that. I was like, what? Gosh, why did I have to like, come come so evolved become so evolved 
you know, in my, in my 40s and not my, you know, in my 20s. And I think I just would have felt less burnt out as a young activist if I had of. So I would have said that because I do think, not to say that there's still not, ch- you know, that you still don't have to challenge burnout being in a party structure, because you do. But in the sort of kind of decentralized activism of my 20s, it was really exhausting, right? And you're constantly right. coming up against people who are like needing all of these other things. And, and all of a sudden you're talking about like what not to do at the meetings instead of what to actually do for organizing. And it's just mm. crackers. Like it just blew my mind. Yeah. So I think I would tell myself that. That's what I would do. What about you? Right. Like what, what – actually, I don't even know if I want to ask you that question, Kieran. I want to say, are you happy that you have made that sort of transition from from saying that I'm a socialist to actually being full out proud to say I'm a communist? Are you happy that you made that? Do you still find that challenging sometimes? Because um, it's almost like coming out again, right? So we come out as queer, and then it's like, oh my god, you got to come out as a communist now. Right. And I actually think, in some ways, coming out as a communist, at least in Canada, it's harder. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it is. Nowadays, it is. Commie is the new queer. Yeah, yeah. Right. Oh my gosh. So I think, in some ways, I consider myself both a socialist and a communist because I do feel like you cannot build up to communism yes. without going through several stages of socialism, exactly, right? Yeah. So, so communism would be the highest stage of socialism, let's say. Mm-hmm. It's a stateless, classless society. And it's the sort of utopia that we can consider ourselves working towards. Even so, But socialism itself is not utopian. It's a very rugged you know, mm-hmm. scientific socialism is very much about the nitty gritty, the practicality of organizing and what it means and, you know, getting people together and organizing information and getting the right information into the right hands at the right time and all of that. You know, there's a practical side to it. So I think I consider myself both. I don't see the problem in calling yourself both. And I think I do. Some Sometimes it is easier to call yourself a socialist. Sometimes it's really important to call yourself a communist and be clear in terms mm-hmm. of like, I'm not a Bernie Sanders or AOC type of socialist. Yeah, exactly. Yes, totally. <laughs> so I, I, yeah. I do kind of look at the situation and what it is. I don't see the big deal about calling myself either socialist or communist, but it just depends on what the party that's listening would interpret it as. So I try to be clear about that. Mm-hmm. And then, yeah, I am happy. I'm very happy with the decision of, I think that a lot of people are afraid to join a party or an organization, but especially a party, is be- because they feel like they haven't, they don't know enough to join, right? They feel yeah. like they, yep. I haven't read enough. I haven't read it all, all of Marx. I haven't read Lenin. Oh, so, I felt like that a little bit. I felt like, you yeah. know, like a fish out of water. And I thought, oh my gosh, I'm going to, I'm not going to know about all this theoretical stuff. And oh boy. And it's like, you learn pretty quickly. It's like, you know what? You learn as you go and you take your practical experience and you see once you start to read certain aspects of theory or Marx or, or Lenin, you start to see, oh my gosh, bing, that was my life. You just summed up my life. You just summed up an idea I, I had or, or, you know, meanwhile, it wasn't even mine. It was just because I was always a socialist. Right. The thing is, you don't have to know everything that Marx or Lenin ever said in order to join a party, right? In fact, yeah. it's the role of the party to help educate you and and all the members on theory when it comes to that. So it's actually the role of the party to organize educational sessions, 
and have available a library, which our party has a pretty extensive library of books that people can read. So things like that are part of being in the party. And that's something that I've talked to other people about as well, about that you don't need to know everything there is to know. And this is the case with, I would say, most parties around the world, most communist parties. So, yeah, I think you have there is a commitment involved to be involved in some way or another in some kind of action, whether it's, you know, helping organize rallies, doing tenant organizing, Mm -hmm. doing mutual aid, being part of various commissions like women's commission or LGBT commissions and things like that. But there's a lot to be done. Um, a lot of parties are getting into new media. There's usually some media or new media presence, you know, social media presence, YouTube videos, things like that. There's all kinds of ways to contribute. So yeah, I'm very happy that I joined because it's given me a sense of structure and it's helped me get to know, get to know a lot of people that I really appreciate, like yourself, but a lot of people, like several dozens of people that I have gotten to know very closely now after working with them for a few years on various projects. So yeah, it's a really cool feeling. It is. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it does in a lot of ways, like, you know, we call each other comrades and, and I love that. I love that it's a gender neutral. Right. And, <laughs> and B that it's, it just really, it's, it's like a warm hug, you know, as a word, like comrade, like I, I want to get your back, you know, and I know you got my back or that we ideal, uh, we, we politically and ideologically think the same, which is huge when you are an activist. You want to align yourself as much with, with, uh, as possible with somebody who sort of gets your, understanding of justice so to speak you know yeah yeah and who is aligned with you that way and who's not going to compromise so like Mm -hmm. people you know the ndp leadership will compromise because that's what social democracy is it's compromise exactly where as opposed to having very clear firm integrity and that i think for me is the core reason why i call myself a socialist and why i call myself a communist i feel like for me i have uh you know deep political beliefs uh, and, and a, a sense of uh, justness, I guess, in the world that no other political party, and I do need to be with a party, that's just who I am, has the, the same perspective as other than, you know, the Communist Party, right? Or right. communists in general, because I don't want those vacillating fence sitting type of things. I've never, ever been like that in my life. Right. It's like you take a side. You know, you yeah, take a side. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you have to have integrity. Otherwise, what's the point? Like, yeah, you don't vacillate. You don't vote for, for, you know, selling weapons, uh, to Saudi Arabia and then go and tell your, your, uh, um, voters that you're anti-war. Like, come on, right? Like, just, you just don't do that kind of shit. Living what you politically believe and say, because really, Politics, your life is always going to be about politics. And for those people who say, Oh, no, 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 I'm a, I, I'm a political and I don't, you know, you are always going to be taking a side at some point because you have a family to look after. You have a house that you needs to go over your head. So there's going to be different aspects, whether it's fully in a macro way, but you're definitely going to be political and making political decisions for yourself and your family in a micro way from time to time, you know? Right. You just will. And the compromise that you have to do when you're a social Democrat just really grates at your nerves. Like, I don't know about you, but it it just, 
it just really totally. feels gross. You know what no, I mean? No, it did. Like that's why that's why I was like, you know, I can't I can't do this anymore after that last leadership con- uh, uh, convention. I was like, you know, I was out canvassing one time and I remember going, you know, where is the NDP around organizing people who are living in poverty in one of the poorest neighborhoods in the country? And the person I was with, an NDPer, was like, well, I guess those um those people don't really vote. Mm. Right. So, oh, okay. So because they don't, they don't matter. So a high, a huge immigrant population in this, in this neighborhood as well. So it's like, oh, so right. They don't vote because they can't. Right. Like what you were mentioning earlier. Right. Or because they're so poor and all you're doing is you're so busy surviving because of poverty and not having housing or shit housing. Right. That you just don't have time to go and vote. Right. And you literally don't. Right. Especially if you're working like in a different city and you got to come back to vote in anyway. But that's a whole other story. Yeah. I I had a similar experience where the NDP staff uh, manager or whatever, he said something like, yeah, those people don't vote. And I was like, well, because they had their data from like a few years before. And I was like, how do you know that different people don't live in that neighborhood. Yeah, and Kieran, and it's also about like so just because these people don't vote, you don't want to do anything to change their situation in a meaningful way because it can't just be lip service during an election campaign. Where the hell are where are your where's the work the rest of the year, you know? Yeah. And I'll never forget what he said when I said, "Why do you don't why why do you want to ignore this whole other neighborhood because the the data from the last election said they didn't yeah. <laughs> vote as much and he was like i was like maybe different people live there right so he was like well uh, people change but neighborhoods don't change that's what he said he said people come and go but wow. neighborhoods don't change and i was like huh and at the time i remember ju- i just filed it in the back of my head mm-hmm. that's why i remember it but it it didn't sit right with me. I was like, wait, what does that really mean? I something is not right with this. You know, I just kind of filed it away for a future reference. But there's a sense that yeah, like the more poor you are, the less you matter. Yeah. <laughs> it's like it's the same with the NDP, and it's really not different. Well, and it's also it's very liberal. You know, yeah. that's such a liberal thing. It's like you know, and the, all the talk about the middle class. It was just like, oh my god, this is just. Yeah, I, I just I couldn't deal with it anymore. I just really couldn't. Yeah, and and the thing is, the more you know, I became more comfortable and privileged in terms of not being homeless and and being a citizen instead of being de- deported in illegal yeah. alien. I be, I gained privilege, right? But I became more and more aware that there were people who were not gaining that privilege oh, yeah. or who were even worse off. And I just felt this debt that I have that I have to, you know, try to make the world a little bit better mm-hmm. with the privilege that I do have. And the one thing I was going to say about the par- being in the party, one of the best things about it is that even if the world is going to shit, you kind of know that there's this group of people that you can talk to who will totally get you. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yes, completely. Yeah. They'll get your rants. They'll get your, you know, your, your, your praises, all of it. Yeah. And it's just, and I learned so much from being in the party and the people that they're connected to who aren't in the party, because that is the nature of, of party work is to, is to connect with, with all kinds of different organizations and groups within the world. Of course. Like that is a fundamental part, right? And that's, that's the fundamental reason why I love the party, like in being in the party. Oh yeah. Um, There's lots of people who should not 
not join the party for various reasons. And that's fine. I don't think that you have to join a party or the party or whatever in order to be a worthwhile individual. I think if you are aware of what's going on, I think that's what matters and how you live your life is what matters, you know? Exactly. So definitely, I'm talking about party in terms of what it's done for me, but I know lots of people who are great people who I would consider comrades in, you know, in the real world who are not party members. And I think that's fine too, as long as I know their personality and their character and they have integrity and things like that. Yes, that's true. But that was uh, that was great. Thank you for sharing your origin story. Thank you. You too. <laughs> um, and I learned something new about you again. I just, um, <laughs> yeah. And I think it was, uh, for me, like I really wanted to do this as um, an introductory podcast before we get into, into some of the topics that we have, because I just, I want to make sure sort of that people understand if we're going to be talking about this sort of socialist lifestyle show, that we're coming from the perspective of being rooted in a lot of struggle and that it is a journey to get to get to the point of political consciousness or just being more conscious in your life and it's it's a continuing journey so totally yeah i was really i'm really happy that we did this so thanks karen yeah thank you and i'll talk to you later all right talk to you later thanks for listening to this episode of red life podcast Please subscribe if you haven't already done so on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at Red Life Podcast, and please consider supporting us at patreon.com slash redlifepodcast. Until next time, take care of yourself and take care of each other. <laughs>